Hey, everybody out there, our podcast followers, a quick message from me, Laura. We believe in covering people and practices that are pulling us together to build a more fair future. And we hear every day from people that programming like this is important to them. As non-commercial, not-for-profit media, we don't spend as much as the other guys, but we don't have as deep pockets either. We rely on you. So what do you say? Are you ready to pitch in to expand the support base for reporting about possibility and love? Or to let the drone of commercial cynicism take over even this space in the airwaves? Please donate now at lauraflanders.org forward slash donate and spread the word. Thanks. Here's this week's show. I'm Laura, and this is The Laura Flanders Show, a TV and radio program that shines a light on the solutions of tomorrow today. We report on the people and movements driving systemic change from the worlds of politics, arts, and entrepreneurship. Welcome. Is the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health a death sentence for women of color? The overturning of Roe versus Wade not only creates a new abortion disaster for millions of Americans, it also exacerbates a maternal health care crisis that was already deadly for many. Unique in the industrialized world, Americans are 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than they are by having an abortion. It's a surprising fact to many people, and it even surprised our guest when in 2017 she set out to write about black women's experiences in pregnancy. At a time when even she thought that American women hardly ever died in labor anymore, Linda Villarosa found out quite the opposite. And if they were African-American, those women were three times more likely to die than white women, regardless of their health, their education, or their economic status. It's a reality that justices overturning Roe ignored with a history that many in this country would prefer we didn't teach. But as Villarosa discovered, the way we treat black women is deadly for millions of them and unhealthy for society as a whole. So what is their future now, and all of ours, now that more women will be forced to carry more babies to term against their will? Linda Villarosa's new book is Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. She's also a professor at the City University of New York with a joint appointment at City College. To kick things off, I asked Linda, when the Roe decision came down, who did she think of first? I actually thought back to my grandmother. So my grandmother came from Mississippi, which is ironic, um, I guess, because of where the decision happened and where the problem is worse um, in the Great Migration. And she had my mother and my uncle. And then my grandfather left the family for a little bit of time to make money someplace else. But she had gotten pregnant and um, she had an illegal abortion. So I thought immediately to her and I thought what what she had to go through, the pain my mother shared that story with me um, a number of years ago. And I just really felt for her and felt for, you know, the reverberations of her family, the hard choice she made in the you know 1940s and the pain she must have gone through. Talk about what a con- what the condition was of for women like your grandmother at that moment, because we often say Roe didn't go far enough. It didn't bring reproductive justice as it was required. It didn't bring what black feminists were looking for, but it did bring something. 
at that time period, there was so much inequality and so much racial discrimination that even to get into the healthcare system in a in any kind of equitable way was difficult. So that's step one to be able to afford. Um, whatever illegal procedure you were getting was difficult. For my grandmother, it was post-depression. Um, and um, there was so much income inequality at the time. My, uh, my grandparents were, um, you know, we were fortunate. They, my grandfather owned a building in Chicago. However, he couldn't get a mortgage for that building because of institutional racism. So he was always, when he came back to the family, he was always freaked out that he would lose his building. So I think of all the financial uncertainty, the healthcare uncertainty, uncertainty and even my grandmother's desperate decision not to fall into complete poverty. And I think that is really scary. So fast forward to today. Am I right in thinking that, of course, the lack of abortion access is now at point critical for, for millions of people that perhaps it wasn't so critical for until this moment? It's been critical for a long time for a lot of women in this country, disproportionately women of color, women of low income, women in states and communities that had made abortion almost unobtainable. Um, but this question of maternal health care and childbirth and the dangers associated with that are strikingly not yet in the conversation. Can you just talk? They're certainly not in the Supreme Court decision. Can you talk about what you discovered as you started to look into that situation, that part of this equation? Well, I was very surprised, as you said, to learn that maternal mortality um, was still a problem in the US, the death or near death of a pregnant person and a birthing person. And I was shocked that in our wealthy country where we have such good health care and such good health technology, that this was still a problem. And also, I didn't understand at the time that black women were three to four times more likely to die or almost die. And but also here's what struck me that a black woman with a master's degree or more was more likely to die than a white woman with an eighth grade education. And when I heard that statistic, that's what made me start to think critically about this and to say, hey, well, this is not an issue just of having great health care. Um, and what I learned was something happens to, to black people's bodies or anyone who is discriminated against and treated badly that harms the body and makes you more susceptible women in this case to a problem during pregnancy and health care. Then when you enter the system, you also don't get equitable care. And there's so much evidence around this. And then when I was writing my story, I got you know the best piece of evidence, sad as it was, is the case of Serena Williams that even though she knew her body extremely well, she understood the condition that she had long time suffered. She spoke up and she had money and healthcare insurance and everything else, but she still didn't get the care she deserved. So at that point, I became very interested in this topic and the connection between this decision if we think of the end of Roe v. Wade as the end of abortion only, that is way too limited. It's a thing that reproductive justice activists and advocates have been talking about for decades to say, please, abortion is not a single issue. Abortion is a constellation of and, you know, having no access to abortion is about reproduction and even health care at this point broadly and not narrowly. You've talked a little bit about the attitudes of those around them, the healthcare providers, and their understanding of, of where a, a African American person coming onto their uh, into labor is coming from. But you're not in your book just talking about 
people's attitudes, um, you're talking about systems and systems that are deeply rooted. And I, I think of the quote that you have in the book from um, W.E. Du Bois, who says, um, black human suffering is viewed with indifference in this country. And I just want you to dwell on that for a little bit, because it seems to be that was a kind of requirement of slavery, of course, um, and it's still with us, and it's deeply in that Dobbs decision. It was interesting. I was talking about mental health today, just earlier with students from Howard University, and we were talking about what happens to you when you're a um, black person or another another person of color into the system and you're showing you're, you're showing signs of a mental illness. You're not treated with the same kind of care, treatment, kindness. You're treated with policing and um, punishment and as though you're dangerous. And that has a direct through line to um, slavery from slavery, where we were dangerous. We're scary. We're someone who will harm you. And then that through line keeps going through. You can see it all the way through what happened with George Floyd. You see it today. And not just with mental illness, you see Black people, even when speaking up, being treated as though we're doing something harmful, scary, or dangerous. So I think that just that alone, that kind of idea that anger is danger and needs to be policed is still in the system. And that is not just, doesn't have to, it's beyond healthcare. It's under all the systems and all the institutions of our country. And I think the white part of that is people like me were taught not to pay attention to black pain. Because heaven knows, if we had paid attention, if white people had paid attention or taken seriously black pain, what would slavery have been? You know, that's what I wrote about in the 1619 Project. I um, chose that, you know, the idea that scientists and doctors during the 250 years of slavery used extreme means in, to prove, prove that Black people had a high tolerance to pain, including emotional pain. So using um, medical journals, using false evidence, using medical conferences, so that it became institutionalized in the medical, in the medical system that Black people um, could endure high amounts of pain to justify enslavement, including emotional pain to taking away children, beating people in front of you, killing your family members. Then the through line to today is I off in that piece, I cited a 2016 study from the University of Virginia that found that um, in a study of 220 white medical students, at least um, something like 40% of them believed at least one myth about black bodies, including the idea that we could um, tolerate pain. This is The Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. My guest is journalist and author Linda Villarosa. She's a contributing writer to The New York Times Magazine, and she's covered the intersections of race inequality and public health for decades. Her new book is Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. You can watch this episode on our YouTube channel or catch a broadcast on over 300 PBS stations across the U.S. Go to lauraflanders.org to find your local station. And while you're there, sign up for our weekly newsletter, which includes information on all of our streaming events and web exclusives, including the upcoming podcast release of today's full uncut conversation. Next, while the maternal health care crisis facing black women in the U.S. isn't new, millions more people are now in the same boat. Are any pathways to reproductive health justice emerging that might make the system better for everyone? 
first, here's Arteries by Eric Hilton of Thievery Corporation from his latest album, The Lost Dialect, released on Montserrat House. I'm looking at a statistic here. In Mississippi, we're looking at a situation where black women are 118 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. If we had real empathy and we saw that statistic, presumably we would be even more alarmed by the decision that has happened, the, the Dobbs decision that is basically sentencing black women, many of them under these conditions, in a forced pregnancy, in a forced, carrying a forced pregnancy to term, to death. How can we turn this around if it's that deep? I think there's a couple of examples and they're, they're kind of medical and a little specific. One is there really is a new generation of medical students, whether they're studying to be doctors, nurses, health policy people, they're studying public health, who really want to do things differently. And I really try to lift them up because a lot of times it's the, the energy is not coming from the medical schools where they're getting their training. It's coming from the students who were politicized in high school and undergraduate college to be more empathetic, to act, to say, I want to be a different kind of healthcare provider, to demand a different kind of education that is not riddled with old um, antebellum myths. Uh, and I like that. And I'm, I've been talking to more and more of them. And uh, and I really feel moved by their passion and their activism. So what do you think is the path to health equity here in the U.S.? I think the main thing is to admit that we have a problem. Um, I see I sometimes get pushback from people who start to you know talk about technology and we just need more innovative medicine. And I said, I think we need to more care. We need to think about the word care that's in healthcare and think of how to show compassion to people. People are suffering and and this goes beyond race. I mean, you talk to a number of people, no matter who they are, um, and they're saying, well, I had such a bad time in the healthcare system. I was like, well, yeah, our healthcare system is rushed. It relies too much on technology. It's capitalist, so it's about making money. And that is a healthcare system that doesn't work. And but it works less well for anyone from any kind of marginalized community. And we know the most about black people because we have been undergoing, been in this system for so long, and it's been unequal and unfair for, for centuries. So if we could go back in time to the 1970s, but maybe we don't have to because we're back there again. Um, there were black women, especially black feminists, laying out a reproductive justice approach that included abortion rights, but didn't stop there. Can you talk about how we might have done this differently, what the black feminist demand was then and what is it now? 
So the black feminist demand hasn't changed. <laughs> it's the same. It's those three elements, the right to have a child, the right not to have a child and the right to, if you choose to have a child to have safe, healthy environment. So if we had stuck by that, instead of going straight for the, you know, reproductive rights turns into the right to have an abortion, things would be different. I'm thinking specific of the 70s because of the Ralph sisters who I wrote about. The Ralph sisters were um, in Montgomery, Alabama. They were 12 and 14, and they were sterilized against their, uh, without the consent of, without the express consent of their parents. The parents didn't um, know how to read or write, so they signed an X thinking their daughters were going to get immunizations. So they um, are sterile. They're in their 60s now, and they never, they didn't have the choice to have a baby because, and this was done through the auspices of the federal government. So, so that's the right to have a child. The right not to have a child is simply the right to end a pregnancy if that's your choice. And then also I think of the environmental justice movement, another black led movement that, you know, still struggling today. And that is the right to have a, live in an environment, in a community that is not polluted, that is not polluted by air pollution, by, you know, toxic waste dumps, where black folks are 75% more likely to live near a polluting facility. I want to keep the themes of your book front and center. And your book is an important and must read for everybody. I also am so living in this moment of what is happening as we speak that I need you to come back to that question again of where we are. And, and is this Dobbs decision a death sentence for women of color in this country? And if so, what do we do about that? I think that I've been thinking a lot about this and I think about, you know, the death sentence and it's real. There is going to be already, this is hitting the South. I mean, the decision was about the South. It's hitting the South. If you take an overlay of, you know, where the trigger laws go right into effect or where reproductive health is going to be in crisis the most, you can just see the states of the South where black people are more likely to live. So I would say, yes, this is a death sentence for some people. And it's the people who can't afford to travel to another state, who can't, who are afraid to find the kind of underground DIY situation that will be existing in these places and that isn't always safe. I would say what I'm doing personally is stick. I go right on that sister song website and I say, what do I need to learn here? I go right on in our own voices is another RJ organization, reproductive justice organization that is talking about the things to do. I think we really have to support um, people like midwives. We have to support doctors who want to do abortions and are afraid. We have to fight it on all um, in all ways. And I think what happens is we start to look only for legal remedies. So that's why when I say listen to black women and think about what we're doing, legal remedies and working inside institutions hasn't worked for us for so long that there is no, you know, there's no feeling that, oh, my God, the system has failed us. The system has failed us for centuries. So we're not thinking about that. We're thinking, what do we need to do to help people get the care that they need? Um, I was having a visit yesterday with um, a friend and her children, and I know blood relation to them. Um, and the woman, I was signing a form so I could go into the um, room with the children. And she said, who are you? I said, I'm like an aunt. And then she said, oh, you're kin. That's kinship.
And I think a lot about that word kinship. And I think we have to think about community-centered um, remedies <laughs> while the lawyers do their thing. Good, yay. But for me, I'm not involved with that. I'm involved with who needs me. How do we care for that person? How do we use our networks and figure out the care for the people we love? And not just abortions, but other kind of you know reproductive health issues. And that's what I'm doing and lifting up the people who are doing it because it's a scary time when they can be prosecuted or fined for just doing the work that they were trained to do. I love that word kinship. Does being a lesbian change our understanding of kinship or affect how you approach this subject? I think being a lesbian and being in the queer community has really being also, you know, having gone through the the worst years of HIV and having to, you know, I was a, I'm a journalist, so I wasn't really in ACT UP. I wasn't doing that kind of thing because we could get in trouble when I was working at the New York Times newspaper. But what I was doing was volunteering at, you know, HIV AIDS community service organizations. And that was really moving for me and important. And, you know, I believe in that. I believe in having extended family and family is, you know, the people that around you, who you love and care about. And I think the lesbian community is like brilliant and epic in that. Um, you know, we have other problems, but <laughs> we do have this circle of people who we care about, who we take care of. And, you know, it reverberates. Our circles um, connect. And I feel the same way as a Black person. And so I feel, you know, I, I remember when my mother was mad at me about being a lesbian. I, you know, I, we had these kinds of conversations and I, cause she was worried. It's like, oh my God, your life is going to end. There's going to be so much discrimination. And I said, well, actually there is support and a kind of community and kinship that we have that um, how we care for each other. And I think that was one of the things she really heard when I was talking about that. So maybe if 73 Roe versus Wade was decided on the grounds of privacy rights, I'm hearing everything that you say is about sort of deprivatizing this situation, both the blame and the responsibility and just the reaction to the situation that we're in. Um, I want to end by asking you the question that I ask lots of people at the end of this program, which is, what do you think is the story the future will tell of this moment, of now? I think that the story is twofold. Um, it'll be about the divisiveness I think, you know, I grew up in an all white community and it's a definite red area. I'm going back to my high school reunion. Everyone is, including my sister is like, do not go, don't go into that hornet's nest. But I'm definitely going because I want to hear, I don't want to be part of, I don't, I mean, I like my bubble, but I don't want to only be in that because things are so divided. And I want to hear, I want to not hear, I want to feel what um, is going on with other people. So I can, you know, I'm never going to be different, think differently, but I wonder if I'll feel differently as I'll have a kind of open heartedness rather than to have a kind of siloed um, situation given my background. And I think that it's also a time when, when we look back, I hope that it shows that we pulled together. It showed that we as a community, you know, I'm talking about the people in our bubble were creative we tried to figure out ways. We tried to talk to each other. One of the most interesting things my family did was have this um, intergenerational discussion. 
with my mother. So my mother's 90 was turning not, it was her 90th birthday. We were upstate and my children who are in their twenties were there and me and my partner um, were there. So my, we said, let's have a conversation about politics and what's going on in the world. So the children were like, we're abolitionists. We just want to blow up the, sy- the system. Abolition, abolition. My mother was like, all you got to do is vote. And so then <laughs> we have to vote. You have to vote. Did you vote? And then Jana and I were kind of in the middle. But we had this really um, interesting, raucous conversation. And I think everybody moved to a different place or everyone's mind open. And I thought we should do that more often. And now the the children are very interested in what my mother thinks about things. And my mother is often interested in what the children think. And I'm interested in both ends. I think that is important that we keep, you know, talking, sharing our experiences and figuring out creative ways to do things differently, especially during this crisis time. Beautiful. What's at stake in this moment? And what is at stake perhaps for you right now? I think what's at stake at the moment is a real crisis, a real pain, real harm to people who have the least resources. And so so people who are living in those Southern states where everything's been stripped away, where doctors don't want to practice anymore, where it's already poor, where the system is already crumbling, those are the people who have the most at stake. If you live in a rural area, even if you live in a city without good transportation, like Jackson, Mississippi, where I spent so much time, there's a, you're in trouble. And it is a life or death crisis. For me personally, um, I think my responsibility is to understand the issue, to be able to talk about it, to be able to communicate it, to be, you know, I'm probably not the one that's going to be chaining myself <laughs> to something, but I am the one who is trying to get a, a grasp of this to understand it. I have long been attacked um, mostly by medical people who don't believe in you know the evidence that I present around racial health disparities and health inequality. I'm assuming that will just grow. But um, at this point, I'm used to it and I've figured out a way to speak about it um, and also to um, fight back. Linda Villarosa is the author of Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. It is out now, and I urge you to take a look at it. Linda, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great talking with you. I could keep going for ages. It's never been race or skin color or thickness or physical predisposition that predetermined the high morbidity rate of black women in childbirth and pregnancy. It's never been race. It's been racism, as Linda Villarosa points out. And it's been racism that's allowed our healthcare system to be built on a bedrock of cruelty that's just coming home to afflict many more Americans today. What if, in this moment, white women use their privilege, yes, to kick up a ruckus, but also to listen and learn? A whole lot of this country has been figuring out how to look after one another without the formal benefits of a legal health care system for years. 
as we think about law and Roe and what comes next, maybe we could talk about rebuilding a new system, a system built, yes, on technology and science and rigor, but on a whole lot more empathy, compassion and care. You can find my full conversation with Linda Villarosa about this and more by subscribing to our podcast. All the information about how to do that is at our website. For more information on this week's guest, along with a suggested reading list and links to related episodes to explore, check out our episode reading and research post at patreon.com forward slash the LF show. That's also where you'll find an invitation to watch the premiere of each week's show on our YouTube channel and chat in real time with me and others. That's every Sunday at 1130 a.m. Eastern. All the details are at patreon.com forward slash the LF show. And there's no reason to feel left out. Our show is made thanks to you. We don't take money from corporations or government, but we are freely available to hundreds of thousands of listeners and viewers thanks to a handful of generous contributors. Want to join them? You get our undying appreciation at patreon.com forward slash the LF show and join our team of Patreon partners. They are our community media health workers. They contribute whatever they feel they can every month through Patreon. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the LF show. And they keep us all healthy. Thanks for listening. This show's produced by yours truly, Laura Flanders, with Jeannie Hopper, Nat Needham, David Newman, Rory O'Connor, Sabrina Artel, and Jeanette Hernandez. Major funding for this program is provided by the Novo Park, Ellen Poss Family, Hisuku Wilson Foundations, the Schumann Media Center, Rising Fund at Tides, Kim Connor and Nick Groombridge, Jane Fonda, and listeners like you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for contributing. Thanks for your ideas. Stay kind. Stay curious. Until the next time, I'm Laura. 